0: This past week, my wife and one of my sons and I watched a documentary of what took place in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., on January 6 earlier this year, 2021. And I have to confess, prior to watching that documentary, I had only but read a few articles in different news syndicates to find out about these events, to learn more about it. And I've heard about it as it kind of keeps making its way in different sort of headlines because of proceedings that are coming as a result of it. For those of you who do not know what I'm talking about, on January 6, 2021, a gigantic crowd of people marched on the Capitol grounds, having been in the Capitol for other reasons, then turned their attention to the Capitol building itself, Tearing down protective barriers, attacking police officers, and broke into the Capitol building. As I watched the movie, I was struck, admittedly, with embarrassment and sadness. Embarrassment because of just the reality that these were fellow citizens acting in such a surprising manner. Sadness because of just seeing both the fear and anger in people's response to what was taking place, and it was also striking to me as I watched people that were attacked, property that was vandalized, crimes that were committed, it sobered me to see how easily people can get swept up into the mob. Things that you could never imagine doing yourself individually, all of a sudden because of the mob's influence and mentality, you get swept along into it. People were mad. They had been told by various individuals that they had been lied to. They had been cheated. They felt therefore justified in acting like they did, saying what they said, and destroying like they had. It raises an issue that has been at the forefront of our country's conversations for the past several years, especially this year. What if you don't trust the government? Can you? Should you rebel against it? What if you don't agree with its policies? Can you, should you disregard them? What if you don't approve of its funding, of its budget? Can you refuse to finance it, support it? The citizens of our country are not the only people who have asked these questions. Citizens across the world, in all kinds of countries, in all kinds of scenarios, have been asking these questions presently and over the span of human history. No greater example of this than to ask the people of Afghanistan, whose country surprisingly was overrun by the Taliban, an unrecognized political authority that now has laid claim to the entire country as their country that which they're to govern. And countries and citizens alike are trying to ask the question, am I bound to recognize them? Should I or should I not? Am I to respond to them with respect and obedience or should I rebel against them? And if so, how should I? I mean, the question we have to consider is, how obligated are we to obey the government if we don't recognize it, if we didn't select it, if we don't approve of it? Well, it's this very situation that we find ourselves tonight in, in our text, in Matthew 22. It's this kind of scenario that we're going to learn about tonight. We are, my friends, in Matthew 22. If you're with us and you have a Bible, turn there. If you don't have a Bible, listen as we go there and just know that they're available to you for free at the Welcome Center. You can have one of those for free. Take it with you, read it. We'd be glad to even help you think about where to begin and read that with you. But Matthew 22, we are in the middle of what is known as the Passion Week. Now, this term, Passion Week, is referring to the seven days of Jesus' last week before his resurrection. There's the day one of Sunday where he is coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, as we've learned, with the triumphant praise of the crowd, shouting Hosanna, ending seven days later with his resurrection, having been crucified on Friday. It was not coined the Passion Week until about the 1300s. The term passion is really kind of the idea of Jesus' passion, Jesus' commitment to be that invested in the payment of sins for all those who would believe. His love for His church, significance of that. Well, here we are on Wednesday of this Passion Week. Wednesday is crowded with events and conversations and people. It is, so to speak, Jesus' last working day, if you will. Jesus' last working day where His public ministry, if you will, to Israel So far as its active part is concerned, his last day in the temple, his last time of teaching and warning to the Pharisees and Sadducees, his last time of call to national repentance, it's all happening on this day, on Wednesday. The day day begins, as we saw earlier in Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 23, when Jesus entered the temple. In chapter 21 verse 23, remembering on that previous day the religious leaders had been afraid to interfere with him, in silence they had witnessed the righteous anger as he drove the money changers out of the temple, in silence as they listened to him teach and saw him perform miracles to the lame and to the deaf, it was not until the little boys started chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Hosanna. And finally, the Pharisees are like, all right, we've had enough. And as you can see there in the text, in verse 21 of verse 15, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? And he goes on to quote Psalm 8, verse 2. All of this was happening on Tuesday. Well, now it's Wednesday. Now it's a fresh day. Now, here's the deal a fresh day is a fresh audience. Why? Because it's the Passover. All of the Israelites are traveling from all over Israel to come to Jerusalem to offer their sacrifices. So, the hope, imaginatively, is that here is Jesus at a fresh time teaching with a fresh audience. He has not had a chance to bend the will of the crowd yet, he's not had a chance to impress them with the teaching. So, in chapter 21, verse 23, They come at him pretty fast and furious. You can see that by way of review what it says there. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? And as we saw in the previous two weeks, Jesus' authority is called out, and Jesus has an answer. It's a lot more than they ever expected including three back-to-back-to-back parables. And so you'd think, well, they've ended in defeat. Because after all, it says this in chapter 21, the chief priests and the Pharisees, verse 45, heard his parables. They perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. And Jesus goes on to teach one more parable about the wedding feast. And that takes us to our text tonight, which really comes in three dramatic acts. Starting in verse 15 is act one, the deception. The deception. Look at what it says in verse 15 of chapter 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. See, the goal is simple for the Pharisees. They want to trick Jesus. They want to stare Him. They have not relented. They have not ceased. They have not surrendered. They have not waved the white flag. They are as committed as they have ever been. They will not accept defeat. And they certainly will not submit and bend their knee to worship Jesus of Nazareth for who He claims to be and has shown Himself to be, and that is no one less than the Son of God Himself. Their desire is to use Jesus' words against him. They want to discredit him. They want to kill the crowd's crush of him, on him rather. The problem is, he will see it coming a mile away. They've tried this many times. In fact, it's probably arguably true that he even knows them by face. I know you, and I know you, and I know you, and I know you. You can spook yourself in the crowd, but I've seen you. We have talked before. We've had these conversations. So now, they're calling in fresh troops, Fresh troops that perhaps he'll be more receptive to, or perhaps he won't identify as to whom they are associated with. So what do we see here? It says in verse 16, they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Along with the Herodians. Some of you have heard the old parable. The enemy of my enemy is my what? Friend. That's basically what you're seeing here in the text. To get a bunch of disciples of the Pharisees and Herodians together to be in agreement to go after the same mission is like something's up here. Because these two parties did not go together. They were not fans of one another. No, the have the Pharisee students come with a group of Herodians would have been confusing. Herodians was not a sect or religious school by a a specific rabbi. They were a political party. The Herodians accepted the house of Herod as occupants of the Jewish throne. They differed from the extreme section of the Pharisees who hated Herod. And from the nationalists who didn't want any Roman occupation, the Herodians would have been a middle or moderate Jewish party, kind of semi-Roman, semi-Jewish nationalist. Right in the middle. And so here it is. Here they are together. You see, Herod Antipas, his ambition was to unite the leadership of the whole of Palestine under him. And so his followers would have wanted that. But they don't just want to confuse Jesus, they want to flatter Jesus. Look at the text, verse 17. The end of verse 16, rather. They sent their disciples to him along with Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Oh, friend, their mouth is dripping with flattery. The sweetness of deceit is on their tongue. I mean, honestly, in any other context, you'd be like, well, that's kind of impressive. I mean, I kind of would like that said about me. Hey, Eric, you don't care what anybody has to say. You're not flattered by anybody's opinion. You're not worried about anybody, how everybody thinks of you. You, you speak the truth, and you're like, come on now. We could be friends if you keep talking to me like that. But They're not here to give Jesus compliments. They're here to distract him. They're here to deceive him. They're thinking, let's blind Jesus with flattery on his character so that he takes the bait and demonstrates his personal pride, slips up in what he says, and is finally caught. Then he'll be done. One Jewish writer, Alfred Edersheim, writes the following, feigning themselves just men, they now came to Jesus with honeyed words intended not only to disarm his suspicions, But by an appeal to his fearlessness and singleness of moral purpose to induce him to commit himself without reserve. And it's simple. Jesus, we have a simple question, and all we need is a one word answer. Don't mean to waste your time. We know you're a busy guy, and we know that you don't care what anybody says about your answer. Just go ahead and shoot straight with us. What is this question? Verse 17, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Just simple question, yes or no, we'll be done here. Do you like riddles? You ever have any riddles? You got a few in your back pocket, you may be sure with friends when they come over. Riddles can be fun. Your friends come over at the dining room table and there you are, say, I got a riddle for you, see if we can solve it by dinner time when it's over. Kids love to learn riddles to then try them on their parents. You maybe will have a memory of that as a child. Things that you learn and you're like, Oh, I cannot wait to try that on my mom or my dad, my grandma or somebody. I cannot wait to try that on them. You know, riddles. Like the more you take, the more you leave behind. What am I? Or, David's father has three sons snap, crackle, and. Or, what has a head, a tail, is brown, and has no legs? Now, just so you don't spend the rest of your time thinking of those riddles and not listening to the sermon footsteps, David, and a penny. You're welcome. Jesus is seemingly being told a riddle. Now, it's not presented that way, but it's certainly a trick. An impossible riddle that seems unable to be solved. Why? Well, because these students of the Pharisees and the Herodians are giving Him this option. They're trying to throw a hard question at him and leave him in a no-win situation. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? This is a cleverly devised question with no clear, clear-cut answer. Because why? Option one, option one, Jesus says, if he says it's right to pay taxes to Caesar, Jesus would be siding with the Romans against Israel. Most Jews, including the Pharisees, would immediately consider him a traitor. Finally, the question has been answered. All the crowd who are Jewish will now dismiss him. The Pharisees like, see, we told you so. He's not one of us. But option two, if he, however, said taxes should not be paid to Rome, Jesus would be accused of being a rebel who opposed the authority of Rome, and the Herodians would be now confirmed in being against him. And may I just remind you of the scene of the city at this time. What it was like to live in Israel at that time, occupied by Roman occupying government. Soldiers who told you what they wanted to do and you could not complain. There's an ever watchful jealousy of Rome over all of its occupied territory. The reckless tyranny of Pilate. The unethical and insecure Herod who already had John the Baptist beheaded. Even the slightest compromise on the part of Jesus in regard to the authority of Caesar would have been an absolutely fatal decision. It could have been proved or an undeniable testimony from somebody else that Jesus had declared himself on the side or even encouraged the so-called nationalist party against Caesar. All that is Act 1 in this dramatic unfolding, which takes us now to Act 2. Act one being the deception, act two being now the declaration. We can see in the text, Jesus knew what exactly was going on. He always knows. We have been here time and time and time and time again. Jesus told Nathanael in John 1 verse 48, Before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree. I saw you. How? You weren't there. He knew the Pharisees' thoughts in Matthew 11, verse 25, when they were blaming him for being satanic. He knew the scribes and the Pharisees' thoughts in Luke chapter 6, verse 8, when they were watching him heal on the Sabbath in order that they might accuse him. Jesus knows. But they seemingly just cannot get it. They keep trying again and again and again. So look at verse 18 of Matthew 22. Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test? You hypocrites. He knew that they're not generally seeking an opinion from Jesus. They're not coming teachable. You know what that's like, right? When people come to you in a question, but really that's just a covered term of a statement. They really have something to say, though they mockly present themselves to be humble with their questions. There's no humility in these questions. There's no teachability here. They've already come to their conclusions, and they want to know, does Jesus line up with them? He sees it for what it is. He sees them for who they are. Hypocrites. Hypocrites. Nevertheless, he continues by answering, verse 19, show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, caesar's okay now let me just help you understand the scene here so they're asking about tax but a specific tax hence why he is referring to this phrase show me the coin for the tax it's what's referred to known as the poll tax now the poll tax is like insult upon injury when you're an israelite because, you know, like, like an import tax, like a duty tax, like at least like it makes sense. Like I got to pay taxes to this occupying government in order that I might keep doing my business, but at least I get my business, I get my goods. A poll tax is like you get nothing out of it. You get no exchange for it. You just have to give money towards it. And it seems like it's like totally unjustifiable and totally unethical and totally immoral and they are totally against it. So Jesus says, show me the coin for the tax. Now, what's interesting is the coin, as we are about to see, has an inscription of Caesar's face on it. Now, this would have been sacrilegious even for the Jewish people, particularly the, the, the religiously devout. They would not have even had the coins with them on person, hence why it says they brought him a coin because they did not have it with their person. They had to go get it from somebody else. Because they are this much against having a coin with the mark of Caesar, an outside ruling body of a Gentile on it. They were that much against this. So they bring the coin. And Jesus asks them for how the coin is used in paying this poll tax. Now, this silver coin basically amounts to what a laborer would be paid for a day's work. Pays with this coin. And after getting them to acknowledge whose faith is on the coin, face is on the coin, Jesus says the following. Look at it there in the text. As they answer the question, it's Caesar's, he said to them, verse 21 Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Jesus uses the word, render. It's maybe your translation is a little bit different, but it's basically He uses a different word than they were asking. If you go back to the original uh, question as it was framed probably in your translation, the question they're asking, as you can see there in verse 17, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. But Jesus uses this different word in responding. He says, render to Caesar the things of Caesar's. Like, what is this? Is this synonymous? He's just kind of grabbing a different word in the thesaurus? No, he's using a different word here. Jesus is acknowledging that there are some things that are due to Caesar that's rightfully due and should be paid by all citizens under Caesar's reign. The coin before them belonged to Jesus' questioners. The, the fact that they used Caesar's coins, however unwillingly or however undesirably, nevertheless they were operating within what that had been provided for them. They enjoyed protection from other outside ruling nations. They enjoyed some level of infrastructure or security, whether or not it was always righteous or justifiable. Nevertheless, then, that they should respond to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. It was an admission that they owed certain duties to Caesar. John Calvin once wrote, No man should think he is giving less service to the one God when he obeys human laws, pays tax, or bows his head to accept any other burden. Now, why is this? Because in the Scriptures, we are taught, and clearly and repeatedly, one example being, for example, Romans 13, that God actually ordains government. He puts government, He raises it up, and He puts it down. So, to be very clear, that does not mean every expression of government is just, is complete, is honorable, is right but it's nevertheless under the sovereign hand of God that God is putting government in place. And so there are sometimes this false dichotomy that I want to live under God and then turn my nose and my back on my government as if I sit as a judge over such other people. Friends, when you do that, you are yourself sitting as a judge over God's design for citizens in communities. What we're seeing here is that he is recognizing there is a place for human government to be responded to. He's not issuing whether or not the tax is legitimate, if it's inflated or bloated or too much, if it's justifiable. He's not trying to commend the tax-collecting industry. He's not getting into any of that conversation. And so often, when you and I get in those conversations, we want to be distracted by all those types of personalities or side policies, instead, missing the very principle of how we should orient ourselves towards government that God designs. The lesson we can see here that we can learn is that God has ordained government and such should be respected and followed. Well, the question inevitably some people will ask is when do we resist government? How should we resist government? We resist when the government tries to override God's authority. We see this with Peter in the book of Acts, Saul as well, when he's being told to be silent and not preaching God's word. But notice what Jesus also said. Jesus did not only say this about the coin. Jesus said the following, and to God the things that are God's. How many of you went to summer camp, I will by show of hands, I'll just confess myself, went to summer camp and had a parent write your initials in the tags of your clothes so that you would hopefully come back with as many of the clothes as you went to camp with, come back with them, right? I mean, a you know, like, you know, little EB in there kind of thing, and I'm going to be honest, bless my mom's heart, I never saw a single kid on the last day of camp going, okay, let's get all of our clothes together. Um, okay, I got EB. Who's got any EBs over there? Any EBs? You're like, are you kidding me? I mean, if you even changed clothes at camp, that was a win. Let alone the fact that maybe it belonged to you or somebody else. And if it was somebody else's, that's called a souvenir. So to be so concerned about this is this idea of like, you know, but, but that's like a loving parent does. It kind of mark that to say, hey, you know, Eric, this belongs to you. So if anybody tries to take your t-shirt from you, you tell them, that's got my initials in it. What's she trying to say? She's trying to say, hey, my initials is claiming ownership. This conversation about this coin is a connection of ownership. Friends, do you understand, even for those of you who are not Christians here tonight, every single one of you have the initials of God on your life, and that you have been created by an all wise, holy, loving God. And whether or not you desire to cover your eyes or plug your ears and not see that or believe that is really immaterial to the reality that's nevertheless true. In fact, the Bible says about people like you and I oh, we know it's true. We just have to like look around us and see it in all of creation, his invisible attributes. Like there is a God. We see a canvas made by an artist, and we go, that's an amazing, how like that ink and oil and paint just like exploded on that thing. We go, no, we think that's an amazing artist. We're trying to interpret what the artist was thinking. And some people have like great interpretations, some have like weird interpretations. But nevertheless, there was an artist. Friends, Each and every single person that exists has been made in the image of God. And your life, submissively or rebelliously, is being lived under His reign. And the question that you have to ask yourselves is, am I giving to God what is God's? Am I living in submission to Him or in rebellion against Him? I think the bigger question in the text is not when do I get to Or how shall I? Or what should I do with government? Everyone's interested in a conversation about government. Everyone's interested in like meaningful citizenship. I'm interested in meaningful creatorship as a citizen of God's world. Now, to be very fair and to be very clear and to be very plain to numbers of you here, I recognize that you might choose to say, well, I either reject that there's a God or I believe that there is some type of God, but I reject that God, Jesus, is his son, and I choose to live differently than that. Friend, then just be aware of what you're saying when you say that. You're saying that you want to live differently than how God has ordained you to be able to have an opportunity to have peace with him. Friend, there is no way to have peace with God apart through faith in Jesus Christ, his son. And I want to be very clear so that you kind of understand in these dramatic unfolding of this events in Matthew 22, which parties you're identifying with. You might surprisingly have more in common with a rebellious Jewish sect or political party in 2,000 years ago than you otherwise realize because you might be taking the same approach to reject Jesus Christ. Though his teachings are plain, his character's undeniable, His miracles aren't even refuted by any eyewitnesses. They're just trying to assign it to somebody else other than God himself. Friends, Jesus in his mercy displays repeatedly such patience and such clarity to offer unto anyone who would believe the promise of eternal life, the hope of forgiveness through faith in him and in him alone. So the question is we look at this text, as Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Are you rendered unto the Lord? Are you submitted unto him? It really comes down to not do you promise to be more moral. Friend, that just will never work. It never works for me. It doesn't work for anybody because we have been marked by, we have been marred by, we've been too tainted by, stained by sin. We inherit it from our parents, our grandparents. It goes all the way back to the very beginning. It is only through a substitute in Jesus Christ that we have any hope to find forgiveness with God and therefore being able to render unto him what is his. For those of you who are Christians, this is the greatest delight of your life, to finally know purpose, to finally have purpose. Why Do you exist to do your job, to pursue your hobby, to try to maintain your physical image, to accomplish your financial goals? For what? For what? Ecclesiastes says, today it's here, tomorrow it's gone. It like means nothing. Your purpose as a Christian is to render unto the Lord what is the Lord's, which is your life to live for his glory, for his honor, to live under the authority of his word and to finally be free to be in Christ, not chasing after desires of the flesh, the temptations of the world or the evil ensnarements of the evil one. The temptation for us as Christians is to go to extremes. On one side, we withdraw from, completely from society, from Caesar, like the Essenes of the Qumran community or withdraw socially like the Pharisees, counting ourselves more righteous than anybody else around us. That wasn't the way. On the other side, the temptation would be to capitulate by joining the league with Caesar, like the Herodians, taking matters in your own hands and fighting against Caesar, like the Zealots. Friends, as Christians, we're to be engaged in this world in a meaningful way, as responsible citizens here on earth, but as citizens of the kingdom of God. Because may I remind you, if you look back at the text, look back at what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 21. Look at what he says in verse 31. Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God. Again, verse 43. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you to a people producing its fruits. Again, chapter 22, verse 2, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king giving a wedding feast for his son. As a Christian, you have a double passport. Some of you know what that's like because of the countries you're from. You have dual citizenship. You have a passport of two different countries. When you're a Christian, you have citizenship here on earth and responsibility to it. You have a responsibility to the Lord as you live unto Him for His glory and for His honor. Which takes us lastly to Act 3 of this dramatic scene, the defeat. The deception, the declaration, and then the defeat. Look at verse 22. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left Him and went away. I'd like to tell you that they accepted this as like, all right, final act, we're done. We've tried and tried and tried again. We're gonna fail every time. And yet, as we'll see in the coming weeks, verse 23, right after that, the Sadducees came to him. They attempted to get him into a mess. Then after that, verse 34 of chapter 22, the Pharisees came to him. They tried this again. And again, verse 41, the Pharisees had gathered together again. They were too proud to accept the fact that Jesus was God and kept coming back. They were defeated, but too proud to accept defeat. It's a question we don't have to ask ourselves today. Are we too proud to admit when the Word of God has corrected beliefs that we once held or actions we once committed, but we do not want to stop doing them? I pray that you would not be like the Sadducees, not be like the Pharisees, not be like the Herodians, not be like the chief priests, but that you would be like the disciples of Christ who said to him, where will you go? Or excuse me, where will we go? For you have the words of life. So their defeat would become your victory through continued faith and obedience to Christ.